The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. Well, let's pray. Lord, we come before your throne knowing that we can even come before your throne because of what Christ did, and it's just because of Christ. We bring nothing to the table but our sin. And indeed, that's something that we're going to be talking about this morning and about quarreling and fighting and division. We still have to battle the flesh every day. And Lord, as we come to your word now, I pray that you would be magnified and glorified and that I would decrease and you would increase. And this I pray in your son's name. Amen. Well, this is my first time up here on a Sunday morning for you guys. Some of you guys I've known a long time, and others you may not know me. I'm Kevin. Uh, I'm one of the deacons here. Uh, I spend most of my time working with the high schooler students on Sunday nights. So that's where you'll find me here on campus with all the, the high school students. But with Corey being sick, he asked me to cover this subject, and specifically in James chapter 4, verse 1. So as you're turning there, this is where he wanted us to discuss this topic of source and the source of fights and quarrels amongst us. I've been recently reading through different books and on the topic of biblical friendship, which is a topic we're going to be hitting on next semester with the high school students as we wrap up Proverbs this semester. And it's this passage here. It occurred to me, I'm like, this is the reason why friendships hurt. This is the reason why marriages can fall apart. This is why friendships have falling outs. This is how churches divide because of the, because of the issues found in James chapter 4, verse 1. So let's read this together. I'm going to read uh, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. This is the word of the Lord. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. So I think it goes without saying that we've encountered quarreling and fighting at some point in our lives. In fact, there is probably some quarreling and fighting this morning, probably amongst us, even as adults, probably amongst children, amongst siblings, fighting and quarreling is not something uh, that 
is a rare occurrence in the home. It's not a rare occurrence in our life. Maybe you find yourself in one of these following situations, relationally. Maybe you're married. Maybe you have siblings. You have parents, coworkers, supervisors, academic peers. If you find yourself in any one of these categories, then this passage is for you. This passage is for you. And it's been some time I was looking through our log of, of sermons that we've done on this topic, and it's been a while since we've looked at James. The last time we looked at James was actually during uh, family camp a couple years ago, where each of the elders brought a specific passage or a specific theme found in James to look at. This book, James, has been met with hostility even among reformers in the past because of how blunt the author is in this book. Here's one quote. Therefore, St. James' epistle is really an epistle of straw compared to these others, for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. That was Martin Luther. But you can come from his context. Think of his context in which he lived at that time. Thinking of James, faith without works is dead. Prove your faith by your works. And he's one of those guys who loved all of these solas behind us on these banners, right? He was a fan of these things. And he thought James did not jive well with that. Obviously, it's not true. And I think in this passage, it answers that question for us as well. But ultimately, James is after one goal. And if you look at chapter 1, verse 22, it says this, But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. That's, if I were to just guess that, I'd say that's the thesis of James in this passage, is be doers of the word, not hearers. Don't pay lip service to your faith. Do it. Act it out. That's the point. James is a hard hitter in this book. If you've done any study in this book, he does not hold his punches back, especially in the verses that we're going to look at this morning. But I think it's important to say, which James are we talking about here? The James that we're mentioning here who wrote this book to us is the half-brother of Jesus. And we find that out in Mark 6.3, but also in Mark chapter 3, verse 21. He didn't believe initially. James was not an initial believer, but he came to faith after the resurrection, as we see in Acts 1.14. And then in Acts 15, the Lord then starts to use him. He starts to use him after the resurrection. He, be, he presides over the Jerusalem council, when there was concerns about the Gentiles coming to faith, do they need to obey the Judeo laws and all that goes along with it with the laws of Moses? He presided over that council and most likely wrote that letter to those churches in the Gentile nations. And the reason we say that is in 1523 and then also in James 1.1, he introduces the letters the same way. It's the only place we see that where he ultimately opens with greetings. But then in Galatians 2, 9 through 12, he's a pillar. He's considered a pillar in the church in Jerusalem. So who are we talking about here? We're talking about essentially the senior pastor of a church in Jerusalem. That's who James is. And he has some hard shepherding to do in this book. But he's ultimately showing his pastoral heart at the same time. 
But I want to look at three aspects of this, of our desires that we read here. Specifically, James parses out three areas of sinful desire that, we are, that are truly the source of our fighting and quarreling. The first one is uncontrolled desires. We find that in the first verse. Uncontrolled desires. Unfulfilled desires. And then ultimately, selfish desires. Didn't want to be a downer in this sermon, but I think sometimes we need to also hear these truths that come from the scripture and where we stand and what's actually going on. Let's look at verse one again. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source your pleasures, pleasures that wage war in your members? Here, James hits it right on the head. He's not beating around the bush, but he calls scripture as he sees it. He calls balls and strikes in this church. And also, well, to the churches throughout, because that's who this letter is written to. He is just calling it as he sees it, based on scripture and how God sees it. The source of your quarreling is battling sinful desires in your heart, specifically uncontrolled desires. The source of your quarrels and conflict, it's your pleasures that wage war in you. You're You're kidding yourself if you don't have pleasures warring in you. Every person is waging war with their pleasures, fighting back their base desires and trying to replace it with righteousness, with godliness. Second Timothy chapter three, verse two, verse four. I'm going to turn over there. You guys don't necessarily have to here. But second Timothy chapter three, verses two through four spells out what are those desires in the heart that we're talking about? What are these things waging war in our members? Starting in verse 1, actually. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Those are the kind of guys we are. Those are the kind of people that we are. That's what's in our hearts. That's the manifestation of sin. And if it were not without the aid of the Holy Spirit, these sins would run rampant and we would be men simply living out our most base desires with no desire for truth, no desire for holiness, no desire for righteousness. We would be these people. In fact, some of us were these people, and you can probably, if you've been a believer, if you lived a life where there was a point where you weren't saved, and then you came to a saving knowledge of Christ, there's probably some of these things that probably hit home to you in one way or another. That's what we are. But the members mentioned here at the end of the verse doesn't speak of uh, it meaning church members or anything like that. It's talking about the members yourself, your being, the faculties of yourself, what makes up you, that war in your members. That's the members he's talking about here. So that includes your body and your soul, physical and mental faculties, your entire being. You are constantly at war within your members. And the source of the quarrels and conflicts among you is because you've relented to those selfish desires. You've given in to those fleshly wants and needs. So these uncontrolled desires, 
But then he turns in and he develops it even more. James takes it to the unfulfilled desires. The unfulfilled desires. Verse 2. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. James continues to be more specific with these desires being unfulfilled ones. Look at the words used here. Lust. Envious. These are all internal sins that we conjure up in our own hearts. That we can develop and build up in our flesh. It just comes natural to us to do that. It comes natural to have these sins develop. And on that foundation springs up what comes afterward. These internal sins become external. Both of them are internal, external. Eternal or internal, lust. External, you commit murder. Internal, you're envious. External, you fight and quarrel. Those are the foundations. These are huge sins. So when we think about just our own desires, whether it be lust, and it could be something really gravity, like high gravity of it, or it could be something small, just in passing, those are not small sins to God at all. These are huge sins. Murder in this context could indeed include taking the life of another, certainly. But it doesn't necessarily mean that either. It carries even a deeper meaning but more likely speaking of the extreme hate toward another person. And we see this with Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. You've heard it said you shall not commit murder, but if you have even hate in your heart, you've already are condemned to hell. You are going to pay the same price as that murderer if you have hate in your heart towards your brother. Same thing. That's how God sees it. That's how Jesus sees it. And it's kind of easy to let that develop and just build up. I don't know if I told the high schoolers this story yet during youth group. At the time, I almost got in a physical fight in school. It was eighth grade. (laughs) And there was this kid, we were just bickering back and forth, this quarreling and fighting that you see here in James 4, back and forth. And it was the last day of school, graduating, going into high school, and kept bickering, kept teasing, and I was like, all right, let's go. I, I don't care if I lose. I've never fought in my life. I don't know how to swing a punch. I don't know anything, but I'm done. But by God's grace, as I was going to do this, one of our teachers stopped me and saw what was going on. He's like, you're not doing this on my last day of work. I don't think so. <laughs> so he, it did not happen by God's grace. It did not happen. But the reason I bring that up is because when I thought about that, that was the, really the time where I found myself giving in to the fleshly desires that we see here where it was leading to a point of fighting and hurting someone else physically. Um, Probably you guys, you can think of times of where you've probably done something similar, where you've just allowed your fleshly desires to take control. You ignore the truths that are there in scripture. I had to consciously suppress the truth, consciously just disregard it, and move forward with gratifying the flesh. And that was just to throw some swings and see if I could make something happen. Not the right attitude to have. But that's what we do in our hearts every single day. We have that battle. That's an example of something that went external and, and manifested itself ultimately. But we have these internal battles every single day. So it makes me ask the question, why would I want to do that? Why would I have a desire to do that? 
What in the flesh makes me gravitate to that as a kid? And what makes me gravitate to it as an adult, but a little bit more nuanced and elaborate? We don't change very much when we get older. Hopefully for the better indeed, but certainly it gets a little bit more elaborate as adults. It's because I wanted to gratify my own pleasures. Wanted to gratify an unfulfilled desire, but ultimately it was a selfish desire. It was a selfish desire. Look at verse 2 again, and then verse 3 as well. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now we have James moving on to giving us the why. The why behind this passage in these previous verses. Why are we lustful and envious? Why do we quarrel and fight? It's because we're selfish. It's that simple. It's not a difficult concept. We never ask ourselves, we never stop and ask ourselves the question, am I relying on myself or have I come to God in prayer for help? Certainly in eighth grade, I did not. In that moment, I was not going to the Lord for help, for strength, for guidance, for patience. I gave in to the fleshly desire to go and fight instead. But then the follow-up question of, am I relying on myself or am I going to God in prayer, is the thing that I am asking for God in my prayer, is it for my gratification or is it for God's glory? And this is where I think we need to be honest with ourselves, especially as Christians who have grown up in the church a while and may have been following the Lord for some time, is it may be easier for you now as an adult, as you've walked with the Lord a little bit longer, to go to the Lord in prayer. But are your motives wrong? when you go to the Lord in prayer, for whatever it is. Is it for my own gratification, or am I doing this for God's glory? And only you can answer that question. The Lord knows it. Do you know it? James is making the point that no matter what the pursuit is, if your end game is to gratify your internal and and, uh, Eternal or internal and external pleasures, you will fail. The Lord will not answer those prayers for you. The Lord will not provide for you means by which you can gratify yourself and your sinful desires. He's not going to do it. He's not going to give you the means by which to start the quarreling and the fighting. So maybe you have an opinion on how music should be done. Maybe you have an opinion on how philosophy of ministry should be done, what we should do with this, what we should do with that. When you ask those questions, and I have to ask myself these questions too as a deacon, is going, okay, the things I want to do, is this more for my own personal gratification and what I envision for myself, or is this going to be ultimately for God's glory? And we have to be honest with ourselves as leaders in the church about this all the time. This is something I have to be very careful about, especially when you are working in a ministry or heading up a ministry. Is, are you doing this for yourself? Are you trying to make yourself look good? Are you trying to make yourself feel more important than you are? Or are you trying to make God more important? Are you trying to make Christ exalted? Are you trying to magnify him? Those are the questions you need to ask. No matter what you do in in the church, no matter what your role is, we all have a role to play in the ministry of this church. Are you doing it for yourself? Are you doing it for God? So, if you find yourself witnessing fighting 
backbiting, gossiping, maybe even participating in these things in the context of the local body. Maybe you find yourself doing these things. Know that it is because you are allowing out-of-control, unfulfilled, selfish desires to run amok in your soul. That's why. If you can think of a, a time right now where there was division, there was fighting amongst the church and maybe amongst your friends here, maybe not even at a, a, a church body level, but just as individuals together fighting, it's because you've allowed out-of-control, unfulfilled, selfish desires to run in your heart. That's what's happened. So, and even in the home, kids, do you find yourself fighting with your brother and sister? Selfish desires. Do you find yourself always irritated with how much your kids fight and disobey? Could be selfish desires. Do you and your spouse always find yourselves bickering? Selfish desires. Do you find yourself always being annoyed with that one coworker who always grinds your gears? Selfish desires. Do you find yourself having a hard time obeying or honoring your parents? Selfish desires. Do you find yourself having a hard time finding the right guy or the right girl that meets all of your personal criteria? Selfish desires. It all comes down to selfish desires. Everything, all these problems, all these issues that you run into, these conflicts, relational fall-aparts and, and deteriorations are because of selfish desires with one party or the other. Most of the time, it's both. But nonetheless, selfish desires. Could you imagine what our church would look like if we'd never had selfish desires? <laughs> I don't think we would need church. I don't think we need church. I don't think we need to have sermons preached. I don't think we need to be studying the word as much. I think we wouldn't have nearly as many problems. I think our pastors would be twiddling their thumbs more. But they're there. They're here to shepherd, to guide us through these sinful desires that we have. Because on this side of the glory, we have to deal with it. We have to address it. To live in a time where there will be no selfish desires and we have complete control over our being. Other side of glory. We'll wait till then, I suppose. So where does this situation leave you, though? Where does this leave you? Look at verse 4. Verse 4 and 5. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires a spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Let's pause right there. Right out of the gate, James comes swinging. He calls us adulteresses, spiritually adulteresses. Not for the sake of swinging, though, but for, because of the truth. That's why he's doing it. Jeremiah 3, 6, and 8. This is not new language, by the way, in scripture, where we see, wow, that's pretty harsh. Let's take a look at what God says in Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 6 through 8. 
Let's see how the Lord feels about sin, specifically in the context of Israel and Judah, who is divided at this point. Then the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, quote, have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and she was a harlot there. I thought after she had done all these things, she'll return to me, but she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw that for all the adulteries and faithless Israel, I had set her away to give her a right of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. That's how God views sin. That's how offensive it is to God. And thankfully, the Lord gives us scripture and it puts it in a context that we understand. An extreme context that is extremely offensive. And we put up there as like one of the top sins in our lives, right? Adultery, faithlessness. Those are big things. That's how God sees it. That's how God sees your sin. You may think is a small thing. Israel probably didn't think it was a big thing either. Neither did Judah. But it was a big deal to God. So, This passage makes it explicitly clear how God feels about sin, specifically welcoming and harboring the world in our hearts. That's what we do. That's what we do in our flesh. We have a desire to harbor and welcome in this sin. Let's go back over, back to James again. But it's when it says you adulteresses, that's the context we're thinking about here. Put that in the mind of the Old Testament and the nation of Israel. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Friendship. One of those, again, like I mentioned, a topic that we're going to be discovering here with the high schoolers next semester. What is this friendship referring to here? This refers to like a deep affection, a deep affection, a fondness, and ultimately a love. That's the kind of relationship that we need to avoid with the world. It's not just an acquaintance. In passing, that's not the kind of friendship that's talking about here. We're in this world. We're not supposed to be of it, right? But we are not to have a deep affection for the things of this world. We are not to have a fondness in our heart for the worldly pleasures. Not to have a love for it at all. Because why? Because that's hostility toward God. When you are going after this world and all of its sinful desires, you are literally going against the antithesis of God. You're going against God himself. And that's what James is trying to make a point of is, guys, you may think this is a private sin. You may think it's an individual sin. You may think it's just a small matter. This division amongst you guys, it's a huge deal. And when you go and you try to gratify your own desires, your own pleasures, your own lust, it ends you up being a enemy of God. Hostility, as I have it in the NASB, that's what I'm reading from here, but in ESV it has enmity, which has a great translation. It's just simple. A deep-rooted hatred. A deep-rooted hatred. If you are loving the things of this world, you have a deep-rooted hatred for God. And you may go, no, 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 that's not the case. In the moment it is. In that moment you are. Just like with adultery, Same thing. You don't have a love for your spouse in that moment. Hostility or enmity, deep-rooted hatred. So when you give the affection to this world, instead of giving your affection to God, you're enemies with God. 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And that is a scary place to be, a really scary place to be, because it's not just like an occasional friendness. This person that it's talking about is therefore whoever wishes to be, whoever chooses, whoever makes intentionality to be friends with this world. Because that's the world. Are you a believer who has an interest and a fondness and an intentional uh, gravity toward things of this world? That's a scary place to be because you shouldn't be there. You shouldn't be there at all. Therefore, whoever makes the intentional choice to be a friend of this world makes himself an enemy with God. That's the choice. It's binary. There is no also, plus. I want the world and I want God at the same time. You can't have God on Sundays and then the world on Monday through Saturday. It doesn't work. That's not how this works. So if you're the kind of person who finds yourself coming to this church every Sunday, faithfully every Sunday, coming in the door on time every Sunday, and then walking out this door with no other interest in spiritual things, I would question your salvation at that point. That's a scary place to be. You're paying lip service to God on Sundays, but you're a friend with the world every other day of the week, which makes you an enemy with God. Can't be friends with both. Doesn't work. And then in verse 5, he backs us up, this truth of man's condition in Scripture. And when he says uh, Scripture here in this passage, he's not quoting directly from a specific passage or anything. It's just a general teaching that Scripture teaches. And this is a difficult phrase. If you read that the first time, you went, huh, what's going on here? This is, what does this have to do with anything? I'm confused. But I think King James Version translates it best. It's a really strange Greek phrase. Um, I looked at it, and it was, it was kind of bizarre. And I think King James, though, nails it. I like it. And it's this, the quote, The spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. The spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. So in other words, what James is saying is, when you do these things, you are personifying the very fact that the natural man has a spirit of envy, that this is in you. You don't need to, con- you don't need to uh, develop this on, on the side. It's already in you, and you're allowing it to spring forward. That's what he means by that passage. Do you think that this scripture speaks to no purpose? But then we come to verse 6, the but God. But God. Verse 6, in spite of all our failures and drive to sinful acts, we are still presented by God with grace that is greater than all of our sins. That's the good news. So there may have been Protestant reformers who have had a, had a bad time with this, with this book because of the faith and works and live out your faith and let it show in its actions. There's grace right here. The gospel is here. There is a greater grace. Indeed. You and I would be in this condition described today, every day, constantly, if it were not for the sovereign work of God in your life. You bring nothing to the table but that sin. All those sins you manifest on your own. Congratulations, you did do that. But it took God to change that. Specifically, 
we look at Romans. It spells it out. You guys don't need to turn there. But here's the problem. Here's man's problem. Chapter 1, Romans talks about this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They don't honor him as God. They don't give thanks. They became fools. And in their lust, God gave them over to them. And God gave them over to their depraved passions. God gave them over to their depraved mind. This wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy. That's us without Christ. That's us without God stepping in. That is us without but God. That's our problem. There is nothing in your internal being, apart from the work of Christ, that would ever have you desire God or the things of God. But with that, with all these sins, those who practice those things are worthy of death. That's the consequence when you disobey God. And then in verse 3, it clears that up. There is, no, uh, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There's none who does good, not even one. That's Paul in Romans quoting Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. That's our guilty condition before God. With this sinful heart, the consequences are death, and not a desire to follow Christ. But then in Romans 5, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, while we were in the state of committing these sins, while we were in the state of fighting, quarreling, fulfilling our own selfish desires, Christ died for us. Much more than how now having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That's the good news. That's what we get to look forward to. Giving you a bunch of downer information today about our condition. But that should help you paint the picture of what Christ has done the work that he had to go through to live a perfect life without sin, without any of those things I mentioned. Imagine hanging around Jesus where he never quarreled or fight or ever fulfilled any of his own selfish desires. And he had every right to do that, by the way. He had every right to have everyone put to death for their sins and their actions and him glorified anyways. He could have done that. But because of his great love, because God is a God of love, and has a desire out of that love to have a relationship with people and to reconcile himself, a people to himself, we get to be the beneficiaries of that, not because of anything we've done. And thankfully, it's not because of anything we've done or else we'd have something to bring to the table and we'd be bragging about it anyways. Not by works so that no man can boast, as Ephesians 2 states. But in order to get to the gospel and to understand the value that it brings, we had to go through that passage. James had to walk through that. James had to tell you, guys, this is where you're at. This is why you fight sin. It's nasty. It's mean. It's vicious. It can ruin relationships. It can ruin churches. It can ruin societies. It ruins families. All because of your own selfish desires. That's a big deal. But God, 
he took care of it. He made a way. He made propitiation for our sins because of what Christ did on the cross, because of how Christ lived his life. He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And here he quotes Proverbs 3.34. Proverbs 3.34 is brought before us by James to remind us of the proper posture we are to take in light of the condition of who God is. This is the posture we're supposed to have. So what's our takeaways here? What's our takeaways? Submit to God. Verse 7. Let's see the consequences. Here's what we're supposed to be doing. Verse 7. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. James is not telling you to be a downer the rest of your life as a Christian. Christians are not to be downers. Even though this sermon may sound like a downer, but you are not supposed to be a downer. The point that James is trying to make is recognize where you are because it'll make the gospel that much richer if you know where you've come from. So recognize your sin. Recognize that. And it's actually interesting. Growing up, uh, like I've told the high schoolers, my testimony, growing up in the church here, which a lot of you guys have known, it was, it's easy to just kind of go to church and enjoy church because your friends are here. You enjoy the time you're having and you have no problem going to church. Um, thinking I was saved most of the time because I said a prayer when I was in Sparky's and thinking that's all I needed to do. But it was not until junior high. It wasn't until junior high at Hume Lake when I had a, we had a speaker in the junior high camp in eighth grade come to us with a message about repentance. And it was at that moment the Lord opened my eyes to my sin for the first time where I actually felt the weight. I felt this. Miserable, mourning, weeping, let my laughter be turned into mourning, your joy to gloom. Coming from a place where you think, I'm in a good position, I'm doing great, there's nothing to worry about. And then shifting to what James is talking about here, going, wow, I've messed up. Big time. I've been an offense to God. My sin and my lifestyle of thinking I'm good enough is not enough. And not only is it enough, it's an offense to God. It's just adding on to the sin. It's not making it better. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Repent of your sins. That's what it means by purifying your hearts, washing your hands, and drawing near to God. How do we draw near to God? It's a question I always ask the high schoolers. <laughs> How can we work ourselves and in, in be in light, walking in, in step with the Spirit? Two things we should be doing constantly. Praying, reading the Word. It's something we have to be constantly doing. And it's amazing how we find ourselves not doing it on a regular basis. And we did that little experiment here a month ago where we challenged all the high school boys to sit there and just go, all right, Read for, and I'm not talking a long time, 15 minutes, and then spend about five minutes in prayer, something like that. And then came back the next week and said, what was your days like? And they were different. As you can probably imagine, when you draw near to God and he draws near to you and he instructs you, he corrects you, he purifies you. He does the things that James is talking about here. 
He does it for you. Recognize your spiritual condition, James is saying here. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Because that day is coming. Humble yourself now. Because the day is going to come when he will raise us up and we'll be seated with him in glory. That is a great time I'm looking forward to. (laughs) Where we're not having to deal with bickering and fighting anymore. Where we're not having to deal with sin and the battle of the flesh and the spirit in our hearts constantly. Doing the things that I don't want to do and not doing the things I should be doing. As Paul describes in Romans 7. It's this kind of person who gets what they want. So if you're wanting, if you're sitting there going, well, I want to pray and I want to have this thing or whatever it is, before you even ask those questions of God, before you ask, like I tell young people, before you ask if you want to be a millionaire, get into the word, get into prayer, be abiding in Christ, walk with him, and then see if you ask that question again. That's the point. You do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. Delight yourself in the Lord instead, and you'll be given the desires of your heart, right? But it's not only that we're saved by the gospel. And we got to get that out of our heads, that if the gospel is only applicable to us when we're saved from, from unregenerate to, to regenerate. The gospel is also what sustains us every single day. The quarreling and the fighting here that James is talking about going on in the church— It's because we forgot that. It's because they forgot that. We are sustained by the gospel and we are called to remember the price of our salvation. Which is why we're commanded by Christ to do communion. It is this posture we need to come to when we come to the Lord's table. And those guys who are serving right now as we wrap up, if you guys could make your way to the back as well, that would be helpful. Because I want to touch on 1 Corinthians 11. And if you've grown up in this church, you know exactly what this passage is about. Because Pastor Dale used to read it all the time. I almost have it memorized, but in the King, in New King James Version instead. 1 Corinthians 11. And specifically verse 28. Duh. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28. But a man must examine himself, and in doing so, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. As we come to, this Lord, as we come to the Lord's table, this is the kind of attitude James is wanting us to have. This is the kind of attitude Paul in 1 Corinthians is telling us to have in the context of the Lord's Supper. Let me read the passage for you, verse 23 and following. For I received from the Lord, which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. That is why we need to examine ourselves. This is why we have communion. This is why Christ established this for us as one of our institutions that we need to be carrying out on a regular basis as believers. Baptisms and communion. Those are the things we need to be carrying out on a regular basis. But we need to have a lifestyle, not just during communion, because I find myself doing that as well. You be introspective, confess your sin to the Lord. But if you are quarreling and fighting with people in this church, you should not be taking this bread or this cup. You shouldn't. If there is unresolved conflict in this body between members, individual people, that needs to be resolved. You'd bring more pleasure to the Lord passing the cup and the bread and going to that person afterward and reconciling yourself. That would be more important. That would bring more honor and glory to Christ in his name than essentially blaspheming the table and essentially bringing judgment on yourself. But I think it's important that we take this step and be introspective providentially being able to revisit this sermon once again for you guys and and share the truths found in it and remember that there is a greater grace given to us. We have that to look forward to and we can celebrate that until he comes. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We're thankful for the truth that we can find in it and that we can make sense of this world. We can make sense of our problem for fighting and quarreling, there's an answer. You give us the answer, and it's a spiritual battle that we have to face continually. And it's sad to just think about this world where people go on bickering and fighting constantly, not knowing you and having no hope at all. But we have a great gospel to bring to people. We have a great story to bring, good news to this dying world. And we have good news in this gospel that we can remind ourselves at and preach to ourselves on a regular basis, that a lot of our conflicts and our quarrels are not, we need to put them in their perspective. And pray, Lord, that you would help us and that your spirit would do a work in the hearts of each one of us this morning and that you would recall to mind sins that we need to resolve, that we need to repent of, and that you would be honored and glorified in the repentance of sin, but also in the worship of the great grace that you have given us. This I pray in your son's name. Amen.